0: All right, pull out your message notes. We are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning. We're doing I'm doing some freestyling in the month of July and August. 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to be talking about being shaped by God, being shaped by God. 1 Kings 17, we're going to look at verses 1 to 7. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a snapshot from Elijah's life. Elijah, not Elisha, I'm Elisha, but there's Elijah and Elisha. Which, by the way, raise your hand, uh, this is totally off my notes already, this is not good. Raise your hand, when you met me, did you think my name was Elijah? Raise your hand. Wrong, wrong. Okay, raise your hand if you thought my name was Elisha. Okay. How many of you thought my name was Eli? Okay, good, nobody, all right? So when I was like 15, 15 years old, I got a job at Vons. I was in high school. And uh, the manager could never remember my name. I mean, he called me by every Old Testament prophet, but not Elisha, right? He, for some reason, he didn't know about Elisha. So I remember one time I was, uh, <clears throat> I was in the back doing some stuff, and, and he gets on the intercom, and he, there's a long pause, literally, there's like a 10-second pause. You can, you can hear the intercom go on, and I'm in the back thinking, oh, here we go again. And 10 seconds go by, and then he says, J- Jeremiah, <laughs> Ezekiel, literally. He called like two or three names out. And I was like, I'm coming, I'm coming, right? And so uh, we're going to look at Elijah, not Elisha. All right, you guys with me? Good. All right, First Kings 17, here we go. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, the Lord, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Man, that's a powerful statement, right? And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kereth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And, and notice this, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let me give you the context of the passage that we're gonna be diving into today. At this point in Israel's history, there's been a massive civil war. The United Kingdom has been split in two. Um, There is Israel in the north, and there's Judah in the south. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, has been ruled by 19 consecutive kings spanning a 200 year time period. Now don't gloss over that, too quickly. Imagine 19 consecutive evil kings ruling a nation for a period of 200 years. And that's really bad. When Elijah, the prophet to Israel, came on the scene, there was a very evil king by the name of Ahab. He reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. He married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Some say. She was the most wicked woman who has ever lived. Under their reign, I said their reign because she had great power over her husband Ahab. Under their reign, the Bible says Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It, It gets worse. The word of God says Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So during this very dark period in Israel's history, the the kings would would often turn the people's hearts away from God and and turn their hearts towards false deities of the surrounding nations. And they would get them to worship like the God of Baal or the God of Asherah. People would often sacrifice their, their newborn babies to these false gods. They would place them into the fire. They would go into the temples and they would engage in sexual activities, sexual orgies with prostitutes. And guess what? They would call it worship to Yahweh. It is against this dirty, wicked, grimy backdrop of spiritual apostasy and syncretism that God says enough is enough. And so he raises up a prophet to to take a stand against a very powerful king, and his name was Elijah. The name Elijah means the Lord is Jehovah. And so what God does is he uses the testimony of this man's name, the the Lord is Jehovah, to stand down a king, to make it clear that there is only one true God. Now what do we know about Elijah? 1 Kings 17 verse 1 it says, in the, the, this is the first record of him in the Bible. All we know about him is that uh, Elijah, the Tishbite of, of Tishbe in Gilead, right? There's, there's not much background on this prophet. We simply know him for, 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 for where he's from. We know his identity is very limited. Elijah faces down Ahab, a very powerful, wicked king. And he says, Oh, hey, by the way, king, um, there shall be no dew or rain. These years, except by my word. Now, if, if this moment, if this story was maybe um, depicted like in, in a movie, the, the, the music would be very intense at this moment. Because this was a prophetic judgment upon the land. This was an agricultural society. The economy was driven by agriculture. No rain means no food. No food means people die. Let me put it into our context. Economy collapses. What happens? Well, it's it's going to be very difficult in terms of money, in terms of gas, electricity, food, life as you know it, has completely ended. And so Elijah, he stares down the king and and he says, no more rain unless I say so. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he picks up on the story. And uh, he tells us in the book of James that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He says that Elijah was a great example of faith. Look at James 5, 17 18. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. Now check this out. So he prays again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. But I want you to notice what James says about Elijah. Something very interesting. He says that Elijah was just like us. He uses the phrase, he had a nature like ours. He was human. See, sometimes we come to the Bible and and we think like these characters are larger than life. Yes, some of them were, absolutely, right? But when you kind of boil it down, these are mere men. These these are mere men, these are are finite human beings. These are people, human beings with human personalities that that have struggles, that have faults and failures. Elijah was just like us in every way, right? Elijah was a man of great faith. Check this out, he was a prophet so he was a mouthpiece for God. God God said, listen, I want you to be a prophet to the nation of Israel And, and he went, he was obedient. And it says that he prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years. He prayed again and then the, the rain came. So God takes Elijah at the zenith of his prophetic career and he takes him into a season of hiding. You could say that God benches Elijah for a season. And here's why. There is so much more that God wants to do through him. It's almost as if God is saying, There's so much more that I need to do in you, Elijah, because there's so much more I want to do through you. Let me say that again. It's almost like God is saying to Elijah, and I think he's saying to us the same principle, the same truth. You know what? There's so much more I want to do in you, because there's so much more I want to do through you. I am the potter, you are the clay. Right, and, and I'm going to mold and shape you and, and form you into the person that I want you to be. Sometimes God may want to do something in you. He may want to cultivate something in you. Maybe a character trait. Maybe he wants to discipline you. Maybe he wants to you know, do some great work in you before he does something through you. Before he uses you in a mighty powerful way. You see this in, 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 in great men Throughout the Old Testament, right? You see this played out in the life of Job. Like Job was a righteous man, right? God God cultivated righteousness and holiness in Job's life. Job walked with God. Job walked with God. But Job experienced some, some, some real tragedy. And God brought him through that. You look at the life of Joseph. God did a great, refining work in Joseph's life, in his heart, in his soul, before really his public ministry. And now you see it in the life of Elijah. You're going to see these these seasons, these these things that that God is going to use to mold Elijah into the person that he wants him to be. Look at 1 Kings 17, 2 and 3. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here... And turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kereth, which is east of the Jordan. Here's point one, if you're taking notes. God uses isolated pain to mold us into the person he wants us to be. See, at this point in the, in the story, the narrative, Elijah, he's all alone. He has no one to call out to. He's experiencing isolated pain. He's in the season of hiding. God has told Elijah, I want you to go and hide yourself at the brook Kareth. The, the brook Kareth, the word Kareth means to cut off or to cut down. It, it means to be cut off from the source, to be cut off from the blessings. Literally, it, it, means, it gives the idea, the imagery of being cut down like you would chop down a tree. Can you see what God is doing here? He moves Elijah from the realm of success to complete solitude. Right? I mean, just moments prior, Elijah's standing down the king. Ahab, this wicked king, and Elijah being this mouthpiece, this prophet by God. Elijah's saying, listen, there will be no rain for three and a half years except by my word. I mean, Elijah, he just like goes all in, chips in the middle, I mean, lays lays down the law to the king. I mean, no one speaks to the king like that, but Elijah did because Elijah was a man of God. Elijah was being moved by God. God. God's hand was on Elijah's life. So he moves from this great declaration, there will be no more rain, to complete solitude. He's all alone. He's like in a desert, isolated pain, it's as if God is going to take Elijah through a season of breaking. You ever been there? You ever walked through a season of breaking where God just breaks you? You know, I've found in life that when God breaks you, he's preparing you for something. He breaks you, he's going to build you back up, right? It's like, it's like you know, like uh, the Marine Corps, military. They say, you know, you go to boot camp, they, they tear you down, they build you back up. It's like God is breaking Elijah so that he can reshape him, remold him, and, and cause him to be the man that he wants him to be. He's gonna cut him down. He's gonna humble him. He's gonna teach him to be dependent upon him alone. See, that's what happens when, when, you've, when you feel broken by God, when you're in this kind of season and you're just, you're just floundering, you're just kind of wondering what's going on, what's happening, you know? God says, I want you to be dependent upon me. He's he's humbling Elijah privately before he can raise him up and do some awesome things publicly. Before God uses you, you may experience what Elijah experienced. You may experience pain, breaking, this, this season of obscurity, right? Especially obscurity. You see this all throughout the Bible. I mean, Joseph, before he was second in command, the prime minister in Egypt, he was first in the pit, sold into slavery, then confined to a prison cell. And he was forgotten by two years for two years, Moses, be- Moses, before he was this dynamic sacrificial servant leader, where was he? He was in the desert. What about David? before he was the, the great the greatest king in Israel, He was a shepherd boy. He was just taking care of his father 's sheep, John the Baptist, before John the Baptist you know, stood before the masses and, and called people to a, a life of repentance. He experienced times of silence and solitude out in the wilderness. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're experiencing the brook Careth in your own life. You're in a season of pain. You, you feel isolated. You're asking God, where are you and what are you doing in my life? We've all been there. Maybe that's where you're at today. God, where are you at My pain, what are you doing in my life? You know, I've learned that not everything is going to be fully disclosed to us, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. You know, this side of heaven, we we're not maybe gonna know, but but someday we will know. And I I believe that God will show us when we stand in his presence, when we're in his glory, I think all of our questions, everything will fade away in, in, in in the in the brilliance of his glory. In the majesty of his glory, I think, I think those things will be afterthoughts. Right now, they weigh on us. Why, 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 why? God, what are you doing? But when we, when we stand before God, I think it will be disclosed. I think God will reveal things to us and we'll understand in a greater and more meaningful way. We, what is God doing in your life? Maybe that's where you're at. You're at the brook Carith, And listen, maybe God is doing a deep, deep work in your life. There was a little birdie that was flying south for the winter, and he got off to a late start. And so he, he got caught in a, wind, a snowstorm, and the snow and the sleet was so fierce that it got on his little wings, and they started to freeze. And all of a sudden, he came in for a crash landing, and the little birdie was just being pelted, and he was so cold. He realized his wings were frozen, and he couldn't fly He just resigned to this horrible death and said, this is the worst thing ever. The little birdie said, I'm going to freeze to death. All of a sudden, a cow came along, stood on top of the little birdie, and dumped on him. Now that's the gross part of the story, in case you're wondering. Just a load of manure falls on the little birdie, and the little birdie says, oh, I thought it was bad. I was gonna freeze to death. Now I'm under this manure. It's the worst thing ever. And all of a sudden, the warmth of the manure started to cause his little frozen body to thaw out. And he started to be able to shake his little wings. And he said, I may live, I may live. And he was so excited, he started to chirp with joy. Chirp, 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 chirp. And all of a sudden, one of Satan's leading creatures, a cat, showed up, heard the chirping, ate, and killed the bird. Now that's the sad part of the story. Especially if you love cats, right? Three lessons from the story. Lesson number one, everyone who drops manure on you is not your enemy. Lesson number 2, everyone, who digs you out is not necessarily your friend, and lesson number 3, when you're in manure, keep your mouth shut, okay? Now some of you may feel, honestly, you may feel like right now, I'm I'm in the manure. I'm in the brook carith. I've been broken, cut off, chopped down. God's chopping me down. Just remember, That God may be doing something in you before he could do something amazing through you. God may be doing something in you really deep. He's doing something, he's doing some maybe some preparatory work. He's teaching you something that you couldn't learn any other way. He's doing this work in you so that he can use you in a powerful way. No hands raised. Are you in the brook, Kareth? Do you feel like God's chopping you down? Do you feel like God's giving you more than you can handle? Do you, are, are you left with more questions than answers? Are you facing the future? Are you facing circumstances wondering, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? I, 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 don't, I can't make sense of all this. You may feel like God is cutting and, and chipping and humbling and breaking you. It's like a sculptor. A sculptor... Uh, will chisel away at a block of marble. And, and, and what this sculptor does is he, he takes his tools and, and he just chips at the block of marble. And he knows that the block of marble is so hard and rough and, and it's gonna take a lot of refinement, but eventually he's gonna get the block of marble to become a masterpiece. That's what God does. So we're, we're a block of marble, and God is going to chisel away. He's going to remove the rough edges. Sometimes he's going to take small little chisels, and he's going to work, and he's going to refine, and, and he's going to polish, and he's going to shape. God sometimes takes big chisels, right, and, and, and he's going to, bigger chisels, and he's going to take big chunks off the block of our life. God does the same and he works the same way in all of our lives. The goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, one thing that, that I always say is a transformed life leads, a transformed mind leads to a, tra- to, a renewed mind leads to a transformed life. So as you're renewing your mind in the word of God, God's word changes you. So God is not interested in how much biblical knowledge you have, He's interested in your obedience. He's interested in, are you being refined? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? I heard years ago this quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. I think there's some truth there. I think God... In his infinite wisdom and unwavering love and providential care in our life, he chisels away. He chisels and he chisels and he chisels and he's not punishing, he's disciplining or he's refining for the purpose to, to build our faith so that our, our faith is going to be pure as gold like, like Peter says, that that. You know, as as God is is testing our faith and we're in the fire, the, the dross, right, rises to the surface, the impurities, right? And those things are skimmed off. But our faith is going to be refined like gold. It's going to be durable and precious and it's going to be permanent. It's going to last. Sometimes God's going to hurt us deeply before he blesses us greatly. I was reading an experiment done recently by a psychologist by the name of Jonathan Hatt. And he presents this hypothetical exercise. I thought it was so good. I've been waiting for the perfect opportunity to share it. Imagine that you have a child that is about to be born. And just before your child is born, you're handed a script of their life. And you have the opportunity to read the entire story of your child's life before they're born. Wouldn't that be amazing? How many, how many of you would read it? Raise your hand. How many of you would not read it? Okay, some of you would not read it. Okay. I, I kind of sense that a little bit as I'm telling this illustration. Um, so where was I at? So you have an opportunity to read the entire story of your child's life before they're born. And, you, and you're given an eraser. And you have five minutes to edit their story. What would you read there? You, you'd read different hardships. You'd come across the fact that your child has a learning disability. While reading um, comes easy for other kids, it's a real challenge for your child. And then maybe you read a little bit further and your child has a best friend in high school and that best friend dies of cancer. You continue to read your child's script, their story, they, they get into the college they wanted to get into but there's a car accident and they're involved in, in it and it causes them to go into this two-year depression. And you read a little bit further in your child's story, they they get a good job, but there's an economic downturn and they end up losing their job and having to file for bankruptcy. So before the child is born, you read this whole script of their life. And you're given an eraser and you have five minutes to edit it. Question is Do you erase? Do you erase? Or do you let go? Now, most of us, instinctively, including myself, I would start erasing feverishly, right? We would begin to frantically erase the learning disability, car accident, financial challenges. We would want them to, to live a life without, any, without some of those hardships and, and those pains and those setbacks. But ask yourself, is that really what's best for them? Is that... Really what's best, I, 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 let, me, let me explain it this way. What if you erase the one thing that's gonna teach them to be compassionate? What if you erase a hardship that's gonna show them how to be joyful in spite of any circumstances? What if you erase some pain and suffering that ends up being the thing that God most uses in their life for his purpose and for their good? What if you erase something that would have brought about their identity as an adult, maybe them coming to faith in Christ, something maybe that God was going to use for some good in some great way, not just for them, but maybe for their loved ones, maybe for a complete stranger. Sometimes there is a domino effect. The number one contributor to spiritual growth is not preaching. It is not Coming Sunday morning, listening to a sermon, that is not your number one, you know, um, trigger, um, motivational force thing that, if that's not going to really cause a lot of amazing spiritual growth in your life. It's not worship. It's not being a part of a community group. Those things are good. God wants us to be in worship. He wants us to be in community. I think the number one factor for spiritual growth is this. It's pain. I think God uses pain and he uses suffering to advance his kingdom and his will and his refining process in your life. How are we refined? Trials. Peter says fiery trials. Look at, look at these great men and women of faith in the Old Testament and in the New. Did they go through trials and suffering? You better believe it. Look at any Look at any character in the Bible, any character. Point to any one of them and tell me, you know what, right there, charmed life. Right there, perfect life. No setbacks, no circumstances, uh, no pain, no sorrow, no no suffering. You, You can't find it in the Bible. God uses pain for a purpose. There is always purpose in our pain and sometimes this is the this is the tricky part it's hard to find that purpose where is the purpose well what's the reason here why why am i going through this well god knows and god has a plan so we have to trust and we walk by faith not by sight so are you in the brook are you being chopped down i've good news for you maybe you're there on purpose you're in the brook for a reason and for a season. So trust God, right? Trust God. Trust God and, and, and know that God's doing something. He's shaping, he's moving, he's working in the pain. 1 Kings 17, let's pick up verses four to seven. It says, you shall drink from the brook and I, uh, that I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and, and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Carrot that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up. Uh Uh-oh. Because there was no rain in the land. Here's point number two. God calls for total dependence in order to mold us into the person he wants us to be. God calls for total dependence. You see, God takes Elijah through a, a season where he cannot depend on anything or anyone but God for those of you that you know i don't know maybe you're against eating meat maybe you're vegetarians well guess what god brought the meat right so right there boom god brought the meat praise be to god and book of acts see if you if you have problems with meat you have problems with god i'm just saying right because because i'm just saying right if you don't want to eat if you're against meat well you got you got issues right because when god gave that vision to peter what did he say it's all it's all good peter it's clean man right and and, and really it was he was setting Peter up to say, listen, you're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So in the Jewish mind, Gentiles unclean, right? No, like you can't be around them. You, you, it's, that's not kosher. But God's like, no, all, all, all people made by me, loved by me. And they need to hear the gospel. They can have a relationship with me. And so here God is, is bringing meat and bread in the morning, protein, carbs, heaven's room service right here in the morning. And at nighttime, Elijah's all by himself. God does this amazing miracle. He, he commands the ravens to, to bring meat and bread in the morning and the evening. Some of you are like, come on, man. Like, really? Like, You really believe that? I know some people, they come to the miracles and they're like, there's no way you believe that. There's no way you believe that <laughs> ravens can bring meat and bread to a prophet in the morning when he wakes up and before he goes to bed. I believe it. Here's why. Which is the greatest miracle? The the ravens feeding a prophet twice a day with bread and meat or the Son of God rising from the dead on the third day? See, if you believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and that Jesus not only died, but he was buried, but he came back to life from the grave, if you believe in the resurrection, all other miracles pale in comparison. The resurrection is the ultimate miracle. It's, it's the ultimate miracle. Jesus beat death. God tells the prophet Elijah to go hide himself at the brook Cherith. Don't forget about the drought. So God tells him to go to the brook. There's going to be a drought, no rain upon the land. According to verse 7, the brook dries up. God provides the ravens with bread and meat. What is this all about? Okay, great. Let's like unpack it. Let's get to the, the core meaning. I think God's message to Elijah and to us this morning is this. I will be faithful. I will be faithful. You can count on me to provide for you. When you don't see God's provision, when you're waiting on God, he's gonna come through. He's gonna come through, he always comes through. He's always faithful. There's never a day in your life where God is not gonna be faithful. You can count on him. You you may not be able to count on anyone else in your life but take this to the bank, you can count on God. God's faithfulness never runs out, it never runs dry. Why? Because of God's character because of who, God's, who God is, right, and, and what he's promised. The scripture says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does it mean? It means that he's unchanging. It means that he's the same, he's constant. It means same character, same promises. He's always gonna be the same. Who he was in the Old Testament is who he is in the New Testament. Who he is in the New Testament is who he is today for us as believers. And that should give us great assurance. Here's the reality. As human beings, we are so fickle, aren't we? I mean, one day you could be, you know, you're a raving fan of a team, they let you down. I mean, you're no longer a fan, right? I'm done. You wash your hands, you move on. God, He's not like that. He doesn't wash His hands, He doesn't move on. God is constant. He's the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Character, promises, you name it. God will for all, forever and always be faithful to you. God says, I will forever and always be faithful to you when you can't depend on what you used to be able to depend on, I will deliver what you need. When the drought caused the brook carrot to dry up, what did God give him? I want you to write this one word down in your notes. God gave him enough. That's what God did. Enough. God gave him enough. Enough for the day, enough for the next day, enough for the next day, and enough for the day is enough. Amen. Second Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, My my grace is sufficient for you, for my power. Is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul is saying, um, God, your grace is sufficient. It is enough for me. God's daily provision, his faithfulness, is enough. God says, My grace is enough for you. God delivers exactly what we need each and every day. Are you in a season where maybe you're hurting? If if we were honest this morning, if we went around the room and everyone shared maybe their hurts, their struggles, if they were just real for a moment, I mean, just maybe the brokenness that's setting in, maybe in in their life, maybe the pain, maybe they feel all alone, maybe they, they have all these different fears. Well, guess what? We would, we would be more compassionate. We would be more caring. We would understand. But honestly, sometimes we think in life that we're the only one going through it. Like, like it's foreign. Like, you know, well, I'm, I'm the only one. Other people are going through the same exact things. God is faithful, and God will always deliver enough for where you're at and what you need. His presence is enough. His comfort is enough. His power is enough. His grace is enough. Are you weak? Based on that verse, God will be your strength. God will be your strength. Are you uncomfortable? Are you afraid? Maybe, maybe you're suffering. God will be your comfort today. Are you lacking? Do you, you don't have much? God will be your provision for the day. There was a young boy who went to see some monks in a monastery, and he asked one of the monks, do you wrestle with the devil here? The man replied, no, we wrestle with God. He said quickly, do you hope to win? The monk answered, no, we hope to lose. It's always best to surrender to God's will and, and, and allow the pruning work of God in our lives. The brook dried up, Elijah, he's learning to trust God to be dependent upon him. Look, let's look at verse 8 and 9 says, then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Point number three. God calls for unconditional obedience in order to mold us into the person he wants us to be. See, God's going to use pain. He's going he's to he's drive you. He's going to push you to be dependent upon him, and he's going to call for unconditional obedience. Now, the story starts to break down. Like, what is the world? What in the world is God doing? God tells Elijah, hey, I want you to go hide yourself at the brook Cherith, which eventually dries up. And now he wants him to go to a widow in Zarephath who will feed him. Now, put yourself in the prophet's place. You've been at the brook for a while. Ravens are feeding you daily. The brook dries up. Now God says, go to a widow. This widow you've never met before in Zarephath, what's going on? Maybe Elijah's like, what did I I do wrong? And Elijah is going to learn that the same God who gives water can also take water away. God may cause the brook to dry up to give us the, the courage to leave where we are and to go where we're supposed to be. The brook drying up is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. God is orchestrating events. God is moving and, 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 and doing some amazing things in Elijah's life to set something up for a greater miracle. God dries up the brook so Elijah would have to go to the widow at Zarephath. It's amazing to me how God does one thing in our life and it leads to the next thing. And then it leads to the next thing. But we only see the trial at hand. You know, I heard someone say that faith is like God dropping a um, like a sheet in front of us, and as the sheet is moving, we're called to move with it. I think that's a beautiful like um, analogy, imagery of faith. God says, "I just want you to walk one step at a time," and as we're walking through life, we're experiencing these trials. God is setting up things in the future based on what He's done in the past to bring about good. For you, for other people, and to put his glory and his fame on display. Sometimes we like to gripe and complain. I mean, I'm so good at it. Man. I I gripe and complain about trials and setbacks and hardships, but you know, God's like, listen, I'm setting some things up. Be patient, trust me, know that I have your back. All things work together for good. I'm setting some things up. This is what God's doing. He dries the brook so that Elijah is forced to move forward. He's forced to go to this widow in Zarephath. Now, we're not going to turn, you know, to the story, but I I just kind of want to share the story. God tells Elijah that this widow, which, by the way, is um, a, a Gentile, not a Hebrew. So she's not a part of God's people. And that... The Elijah, this prophet, is going to go to this widow and he's going to, and uh, she, she will feed him. So at Zarephath, Zarephath is about 75 to 100 miles across a barren land. Now, he doesn't have a car, doesn't have a buggy, there's no train, there's no airplane. How does he get there? Most likely by foot. So brook drives up, he travels 75 to 100 miles across a barren land, Elijah meets this widow at the gate of the city. She's gathering sticks. Elijah asks her for a little water and some bread. Widow says, I have no food. Only a little flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And literally she's preparing the the last meal for her and her son. And she says, I'm preparing our last meal before we die. You have to remember, drought, no rain, no food. How did Elijah respond? Well, Elijah said to her, do not fear. He tells her that the flour will not run out and the oil will not run dry until God sends rain upon the earth. And then the Bible story tells us that they ate for many days. Can you imagine having a little flour, a little oil, and they're eating for many days? I mean, she's got to, her mind's got to be blown away, right? And Elijah's sitting there just probably just a grin on his face, right? The tragedy, tragedy struck, her son dies. Can you imagine? She's really angry at Elijah. Elijah did something that has never happened before up until this point in history. Elijah takes the limp, warm body of this little boy and carries him upstairs to his room and lays him on the bed. And then it says, Elijah cries out to God. He stretches himself out on the boy three times while crying out to God saying, Oh, Lord, my God. Let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the boy came back to life. Elijah gives the boy back to his mother and says, see, your son lives. Verse 24 of that story, now I know that you are a man of God. This is what she says. I I know that now I know, now I know, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of God in your mouth is truth. Elijah's identity changes from he's from Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Galilee to his identity, his identity changes to for whom he serves. She calls him, you are a man of God. Now, why did this happen? Why did this happen? God took Elijah, as I said, at the zenith of his career. He's having all this success. He tells the king, stares him down, no more rain. You don't call the shot they have. God does. And I'm going to prove to you that there is only one true God. And then God takes Elijah to the brook Kareth and where he chops him down. He chips away at him. God uses a season of of dependence in his life where he had to trust God. He had to trust ravens, right, to bring bread and, and, and meat. And then God dries up the brook. He dries up the brook so that he would leave where he was and go where God ultimately wanted him to go so he could perform an amazing miracle and raise a dead boy back to life. You see how God sets it up? So what is God doing in your life? Maybe there's pain. Maybe God is, is, is wanting you to be totally dependent upon him. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's more than that. Maybe God is calling for obedience in your life to be faithful so that God can shape you, so that God can do something in you, but ultimately he could do something through you. Some of you right now, you're in a season of pain and you don't know what to do with it. Give it to God. Maybe you're... You're in a season of like total dependence. You're like, I, I just don't even know what to do. I'm just, just keep trusting God. Just keep trusting God. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep your eyes on God. Some of you are, are you're learning unconditional obedience. You know, I'm just being faithful. God calls me to do this. I'm just going to do it. <clears throat> Whatever season you find yourself in, hold on to the truth that God may be doing something in you because someday, he wants to do something through you. CS Lewis said this. God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. You see, God you, you see pain is God's megaphone to get our attention. And sometimes God allows pain to get our attention to draw us close to his heart. To to move our our affections, to get get our eyes refocused on him. In the midst of your pain, maybe God is trying to get your attention. Allow that pain in your life to drive you to him. God can help you in your pain, but he wants to do a greater work than that. He wants to give you purpose, and he wants to give you a relationship with him. Maybe, just maybe, you've never given your life and your heart to Christ. And you're experiencing pain, I can tell you, as the song that we sang, He's Waymaker, Miracle Worker. God can take your pain and He can transform it. And not only can He take your pain, but he, He took your sin upon the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus came, lived that perfect, righteous life, died on the cross for our sin was buried and he rose again the third day so that our sin doesn't separate us from God. Jesus came to be the bridge, to bridge the gap, to, to, to reconcile into a right relationship with God. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can, can atone for your sin. Only Jesus can pave a way to God. Only Jesus can do that redemptive work. Only Christ can wash your sins away and give you a new beginning in a new hope, and new life, eternal life, this abundant life that that he promises to give. Why don't you give your life to Christ this morning? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, this morning, to trust you, God, as we navigate different seasons in, in our life. Lord, we know that you allow pain to come into our lives to shape us, to mold us, to break us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Help us, Lord, to trust you. When the pain is feels so unbearable, Lord, help us to give you that pain. We know that that pain is not wasted. It is, it is meant to refine and to change us. And to draw us closer to you. God, I pray that you would speak to us, speak to those this morning that maybe you've got them in a season where they have to completely and utterly depend upon you. God, I pray that you would continue to be faithful to them. Show them that you are enough. You are enough for them. And you can remove obstacles. You could pave the way. You can bring them into a bright future. God, maybe those, some are struggling. They're living this life of obedience and they're just wondering what's going on. God, show them that that you're in control. Comfort them. God, I pray that we would allow the struggles and the pain and the setbacks of life to draw us closer to you. Lord, help us to be under your hand. Help us to humble ourselves and to trust you and to follow you no matter what comes our way. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.